This is Lisa Pierce, Executive Editor of Packaging Digest, with another episode of Packaging Possibilities, a podcast that reveals what's new and what's next for packaging executives and engineers, designers, and developers. In this episode, I'm talking with Michael Keplinger, Managing Partner of Smash Brand. Smash Brand is a packaging design and branding agency that creates and tests packages with consumers, then optimizes and tests them again. So you can be sure your product will sell before it hits the shelves. Despite all the talk about being data-driven these days, a surprising number of packaging design decisions are still being made by people going with their gut. So today, we're going to explore this outdated practice of picking packaging designs subjectively rather than objectively based on hard numbers from consumer research. Welcome, Michael, and thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you, Lisa. It's uh, great to be here, a topic that is uh, near and dear to our heart and uh, happy to kind of talk through some of this stuff. Tell us a little bit about the typical decision process that clients go through when they're signing off of new or updated packaging designs, which for a brand usually happens every couple of years, right? It does. Um, it at least uh, probably should look at deciding to do that in every couple of years. That's a, a good idea to signal to consumers uh, that you're relevant and still important to them as lots of competitors come in the marketplace all the time. Mm-hmm. So what's the typical process that these uh, companies go through when they're creating a new design, updated design? Uh, well, we do work with a lot of brands in different life cycles. I think in the past decade and even longer, there's been a lot of challenger brands, newer brands. But generally speaking, depending on the level of sophistication of the brand, there is a lot of subjectivity. A typical kind of engagement is, or looking at that is, as you look at creative and it comes forward, there's a lot of uh, stakeholders at play and it's the questions typically revolve around what we like, what we think conveys the brand in different ways and how do we want to sound? I like how this sounds. Can we change? Can I see this a different way? And this are kind of in early stages of that decision making. And I think um, what is for us seems to be a little bit missing from that is mm-hmm. the actual consumer. The consumer who is ultimately the one that's uh, opinion is driving their purchase decisions. And more and more today, especially in fast moving consumer goods where we spend most of our time, those uh, low engagement decisions tend to be made at the shelf more than anywhere else. And so um, I think that uh, as we look at the decision making and trying to overlay the entire brand and and how we activate and market, there seems to be uh, a little bit of a a loss of looking directly at the consumer and getting that feedback. And does it matter? I know you, um, you said you work with a lot of different brands and different size brands, and I loved your description of a challenging brand rather than a lot of people would say emerging brands or entrepreneurial brands and things like that, new brands. Um, So I I love your description of that. But does it matter on the size of the company? And does it also matter because of the maybe experience or lack of experience with the the packaging staff that's at those companies? Do you see it more with the challenging brands, challenger brands? 
Well, the Challenger brands, um, you know, a new brand or even a young brand, and, and maybe they've sold online or direct to consumer, which is a popular model to get some traction be- and almost a proof point that you need to get into retail. But they are in a place where they can take a lot more risk. And um, whereas an established brand, uh, especially as they revisit, you know, every couple of years, a packaging refresh and changes is does require a different approach. And, and so those questions about designs are, are different. Um, but again, you have to put a strategic hat on in a brand that's existing in the marketplace. They have revenue they're protecting. Will those consumers show up at that shelf and remember, recognize that this is the same brand? And so uh, you definitely have to have a more of a thoughtful approach uh, to that decision making. But it still uh, it still is important to to bring that consumer into that. So I, I guess to answer your question, um, and almost even these these newer brands, there's there really are so many out there that. Uh, some brands do, I think, do a great job of um, planning and and really putting something out there. And and we like as new brand owners, especially, or even a, an existing brand that wants to launch a new product, a sub brand, or expand out the examples of uh, really successful brands. But I think uh, what really happens is uh, many brands launch, and uh, it's almost through trial and error that uh, we only hear about the successful ones that come forward, and they figured something out. <laughs> Uh, that resonates, that works with consumers. And uh, some of it, again, is purposeful. And I think some of it happens just out of sheer luck. And so those are the examples that we hear of. But when we really think about what does work and being purposeful about it, I think that that is some of the decision making that uh, you can get in front of that and ha- and increase your odds of, of success, uh, for in particular for a new product launch. So I've heard a lot about making sure that your package design brief is the right balance of being descriptive enough that you communicate what it is that you want to communicate to whoever's coming up with the new design, but also broad enough so that you can give them the flexibility of perhaps coming up with something brand spanking new. Do you want to talk a little bit about the uh, package design brief and how maybe that could enter into the whole process here and downplay subjectivity a little bit? Sure. Probably a way to think about a, a creative brief, like every creative deserves or needs a good brief. And traditionally, you see models of what those look like. And probably for a long time, we had things that maybe had a lot of similarities to to how an ad agency might function and, and uh, bringing a lot of elements of the brand there. And what we've learned over the years and where we've really narrowed our process is really Believing that to win at the shelf, that where, uh, especially in today's day and age, that packaging is doing all the work. It's doing all of your branding. It's doing all of your messaging. That's not to say that there aren't other elements that work in there. And so a brief that Smash Brand makes is really centered on what is going on in that environment. In an advertising space, you can create the emotion, you can create the context. But when a shopper shows up at that store shelf, um, they're showing up with a lot of stuff in their head. And everything that they see and think about on a package, on a product, is related to their view of what that category, that product means, what the other products on the shelf are in relation to it. And so the way that we approach design and strategic design to be a high-performing product in a retail environment is to really spend most of our time understanding what's going on with with, uh, consumers in that space. They show up. And what we find when you really um, focus all of your energy on that 
is uh, there's nuances in that category that we have to work around. Um, sometimes uh, consumers show up with a preconceived conception uh, about entire category and we have to work around that. Or understanding how retail is typically going to slot things and like where it will be faced are unique challenges. And so our brief, and we actually take our creative team frequently out into the field and we'll pick a category. It's kind of a fun thing that we do. And we're like, what do we think is going on here? A typical consumer shows up. What are they showing up here with? What are they thinking about? What are the objections they already have in the head? And what do they ha- what do they see? What's grabbing their attention? And like, who are the dominant players? And so, our creative briefs really focus on that shopping context. We it's very important where our creative team, without having to be in the field, understands and almost can feel and see through the eyes of the consumer what they experience because they're plotting a, a, a design, a creative path through that to react to um, what consumers see that ultimately positions the product uh, the way that uh, we're trying to get the product perceived by a consumer. Um, and so that is that is really a brief and, and the role of a brief, I think, and uh, for brands in general to really think about designing towards an action, an outcome, and those are the consumer perceptions that ultimately lead to purchase. A couple of times you've mentioned something about in the environment. And um, then you've given uh, a couple of examples. Well, not like strict examples, but just, um, you know, format examples, which I totally get. What struck me is as you were talking, you were talking about the variations that are in here. It could be the product category. It could be the channel, um, a dollar store versus a grocery store, for example. To me, because of all those variations, I could see very easily how and why the decisions could get made um, very subjectively because there are so many variations there. Could you kind of outline what are some of the, the dangers, I guess, or the downsides of making subjective decisions when it comes to picking a packaging design? Uh, I think probably a good way to bring a little more life to this and is to color it in with a specific example. Um, I won't talk about I won't talk about a specific brand because this is uh, something that we're working on. But the category, I'll preface that by like, let's look at mayonnaise. That's something that everybody understands. So a consumer, they show up and they're very habitual about what they buy. And we know this through kind of research and things. They don't expect mayonnaise to be different, um, like one brand to the next. And when a brand comes forward, which we, we, we saw recently um, with kind of a, a special recipe, so to speak, and what that means and, and explaining that with how mayonnaise is made. And so it's important to understand understands like as a consumer I show up do I know does it do the average consumer know that uh, mayonnaise is made with with eggs uh, and your recipe is about you know using uh, some specific kinds of eggs Th- those are the kind of things like you really need to understand what the customer shows up with uh, at that shelf now take dog food for example now this is very different this is on the heels of some mega trends of big brands uh, trustworthy brands brands that we expect to to kind of uh, do things the right way getting in trouble and having recalls and having bad food and getting caught behind this. You couple that with, with and these are all trends I think that most people can relate to, the humanization of pets. We, we tend to think of yes. as like part of our family. And and so the analogy is like, how how will I, how do I think about my babies and, and buying that kind of food? And so when a consumer walks into a, a pet food store like PetSmart or Petco, 
it's a very different shopping environment. They show up there with apprehension. They show up there uh, with distrust to a brand. And so a new brand or, or, or an existing brand that wants to switch a, to uh, a customer needs to understand these things. And uh, what we find through the research that we do and talking to consumers so extensively is that, so getting back to your question, I want to tie it all together because of subjectivity. I yeah. might, as a brand, I might go into that store and observe that uh, all these very successful brands are putting all these statements on their pack. And they're saying all of these things. And so therefore, I need to do these things also, you know, stand out and different. But what we find, actually, when you go in there and you talk to consumers is that because they have distrust for brand, the statements that brands make are um, if they can't think about them like in their own head, kind of weigh the validity of that. And or they have some third party signal like, say, veterinaries or something along those lines to validate it, then they have to trust the brand. But knowing that they have there's a fair amount of distrust for new brands, for different brands, what we find is that the more you say, the less trustful it is. <laughs> and uh, and so a very mm. unique uh, situation here that arose, really, you can't get these insights and understanding of this without putting something in front of consumers and and kind of weighing and getting inside of their head about how it reacts. And and so if you take that subjective decision making, you're missing the point. You're missing the point that um, you actually can have more credibility as a brand in that space by saying less. And so every category has these different nuances that I think are maybe hidden to brands. And, and so we we overlay kind of our opinions of what we think uh, what we think people want without actually knowing. And I think the, that subject where it comes from is that it's really hard to get those insights. It's really challenging to try to to use them to make decisions. And so we're left with our opinions and then uh, and they tend to be varying and different. And if you have a, a broad team of stakeholders and decision makers, it tends to gravitate towards the, the safest approach and the, the least risk which is usually not what works with consumers. Is it important then to get inside the consumer's head, as you said, at various times? So where and when they buy, and then where and when they use the product. Are those the two main areas? And I know ethnography has been um, you know, studied at the consumer level for a long time, but is, is that um, where you're looking at the store and then at the point of use? It is. We, we think about a lot of things. What's the role of, of the of the product in the in the consumer's life when they go home? Because then it really could be, is it a granola bar where you're going to tear off the wrapper and it goes in the trash? And so the role of that packaging is to just sell the product. Um, whereas something like Method Soap, a very successful brand that uh, smartly figured out that is essentially like their soap is home furnishing. And they realized that by creating a very attractive packaging and a very stylistic thing that it was going to actually sit on someone's counter for weeks to a month. Yep. I'm looking at one container across exactly. the room right now. You know, brands that where you're tr you have to differentiate and, and not everybody's product itself it has a rational differentiation differentiation to it. And then you have a brand level and we connect a brand through different emotive ways. But we also, when we think about physical products uh, in a retail environment, this is getting at what you're saying is, is like, how do they 
use the product after they take it from the store. Um, is there something that is, is an experience that happens? You know, we see this with tech products a lot and you open the box and the unboxing actually enhances that experience and um, either meets, exceeds or disappoints consumers in a way that uh, is just as important uh, for them to not only refer the brand, talk about the brand, especially in products that are consumables that we come back is being an important part of, of getting that repeat purchase again and again. So those are all important considerations. And um, the, the hardest thing really is, unless you disappoint your consumer, but the hardest thing is really getting that first trial. Uh, we tend to focus a lot of our energy at really what's at play there uh, in the retail environment. I, I think that what we do is transferable to other channels, but knowing that the, the packaging is all by itself there, we focus on, on really how you first attract the, those eyeballs in, in the competitive space, again, standing out, and then succinctly communicating your, that unique position that you have. And then those follow-on things, uh, as you're talking about, are important too, but to differing degrees, depending on kind of what category you're in. I loved the example that you gave of the dog food and the mayonnaise. Um, those were great. Tell us a little bit more now about what your process is and then maybe what are some of the benefits of being able to make a data-driven decision? Sure. I mean, we're a full branding agency, and so it's important to focus on the brand, but we have decided to really narrow and focus intently in, in at least the data side of what we're doing at that, as I've talked about, on that retail shopping experience uh, in the store. And so okay. as I talk about and really explain how, how we think about it, those other components of the brand are very important and how your physical product and its packaging fits together in an overall brand activation, like where you market and where you connect with consumers and the digital world and print and these kinds of things are all important and they need to be cohesive. But I'm gonna focus a little bit on, on this part because I think it's really challenging and I don't think as much attention in the kind of industry is given to what realistically in, in a in a fast-moving consumer goods product like a grocery store or a drugstore happens sometimes in three to 20 seconds. And a lot happens there. You know, we focus on that brand, that position. And as I talked about, um, there's a piece of that and only really a piece that really has space and place on the package. And so it's understanding that brand, that position, what do you stand for? Uh, are you leading with this kind of emotive uh, position or do you have like a very strong rational differentiator, but in the small world of like 30 to 20 seconds, you really can't accomplish a whole lot. And so I think that we find a lot of success of, of thinking about what is that primary perception. People talk a lot about differentiation and, and, and this is all in that scope, but I like to even think of it as perception is, is um, we weigh everything in the world that we see and the products that we see and the packaging that communicates to them and we judge them because that's human nature and we make quick immediate judgments and those judgments are um, done and we're trying to lead to perceptions. And so that essentially is the root of the strategy work. None of this can be done without a deep, deep audit into that competitive space. We have to understand who are the competitors and what does that retail shelf look like, the retail shopping environment, who are those consumers, and, and not only what products are on the shelf next to them, but who they compete with and their substitutes and, and that, that job of that product. And then the brand itself and how does what's that unique place 
that it fits in there. So that is that first kind of step, I would say, that bucket, we'll call it, of positioning, of really understanding that white space. Like, how do you want to stand out and feel different in such a short amount of time? And Michael, if I could just uh, comment for just a moment here, it's very interesting to me because I could imagine the consumer's mindset being completely different based on whether package new package design was for their primary brand or if it was for their substitute brand. Um, so I loved, again, those descriptions, primary versus substitute. It's a kind of a side note. There's a, an author I follow that I, I really have a lot of respect for, uh, named Byron Sharp, and he wrote a book called How Brands Grow. And it's all backed by science. There's a lot of science behind this and, and really backing up uh, brands that really think that uh, like they own a particular consumer but what you find is that consumer behavior is, is so fickle, and especially on these types of brands. And if you think about your own shopping, I might buy one granola bar one week, and, and then two weeks later, I just feel like I want to try something else. And so your customer is your competitor's customer a week later. <laughs> uh, I'm oversimplifying it. When we think about positioning and, and that unique place, I'm going to go back to there. So a lot of time, that's the very strategic part of it. And then uh, there's a visual part, right? You have to stand out on that shelf and be distinctive. We actually get pretty uh, scientific about this in a way of your colors and shapes and these things that essentially create uh, memory pathways to be memorable and, and stand out and, and just be different. And like we talk about method, like the, the actual substrate, the bottle that they chose is very, very distinctive to an otherwise rather boring category of, of soap. And so our really our process about how do we Grab that attention so that I can succinctly, you know, following on what I talked about before, a leading, singular, simplistic message to kind of anchor the brand and position and then follow on and communicate uh, what that brand is, understanding the role of the different sides. So the front of the package is, is rather limited. There's usually a lot of things that you have to communicate. And so positioning the product, I think maybe some brands try too hard to do it all on front of pack. And so we spend a lot of time of understanding where is the difference of creating intrigue and enough where I'm thinking about what's going on in those 20 seconds is this enough that they pick it up, they're intrigued, it's grabbed their attention, they kind of understand how this product might be different. They might not be convinced yet, but as we test and we learn what other information consumers need, then it kind of paints a picture where we can fill in the blanks on other panels to ultimately communicate that exact position, uh, feel very different and special uh, in the competitive space that ultimately leads to um, you know, persuading them to buy this product over another. And we do uh, several rounds of consumer testing. Each of those are focused on, like in our early stage, it's very much of a learning phase. We're learning what's working, what's not. Uh, we're able to explore a large range of creative, uh, both in messaging that is going on pack and the visual creatives that work with those, and then narrowing down to finding what works and then simulating that buying experience to uh, to understand what what is driving purchase. Explain a little bit more about how your process taps into the data and helps brands make those package design decisions based off of the data. Sure. We have probably four distinctly different ways that we can talk to consumers. We don't do it on every single, not every brand needs that, but early in the position phase, it might be more like a traditional uh, research study where you're just kind of understanding more about the consumer and trying to find that white space. But I'll spend a little bit more time as we narrow down uh, and, and we're focused more and more on the performance of the packaging. In the early phase of creative exploration, now this is where we talked about early on where an agency might or a creative team may come up with some concepts 
the presenting it to the brand owners, the stakeholders. I think the traditional way is, uh, hey, we like this. Can we see more of that? And several rounds of creative go there. But what we do before we even really present any creative, we purposely explore a wide range of creative. We kind of go through two rounds. And one is focused specifically on the words, on pack. If we're talking about dog food, we were talking about that earlier, we might mm -hmm. use a completely white package that uh, creates, you know, show some dog food there. Consumers really understand wh what we're looking at, the product category. We're understanding words on pack. What's peaking interest? What's driving um, importance? What's resonating? Also learning what is less believable because uh, in such a small amount of space to communicate, it's so critically important that you understand what you say. Like, how, how do I react to that? Does it create the proverbial scrunchy face, like it creates um, like apprehension and doubt, or is it actually like believable? And so we focus yeah. a lot on believability. We focus a lot on measuring different purchase drivers and, and ranking those because what those will translate to is on pack, where do we create emphasis? Like is something a large typeface and really small typeface, like they need to know it, but it's actually driving purchase. Um, and so one round of creative is focused really on the front of pack words. And it sounds like, as you had already said, that it's just as important to know what not to say and do as it is to know what to say and do. It's a funny nuance. And this is something I think in the process could be passed over without really even a thought. But every word has meaning to us. And, and so we take that as consumers. And of course, context always matters. So in the context of a retail environment, in, let's say, a Petco store, talking about dog food, when you say this, is that believable? By testing it this way and put it in front of consumers and creating the, the similar context that they'll find in that shopping environment, we're able to understand how they take their meanings of meaning of words and apply it within that very, very specific environment and, and measure what resonates and what is believable and what is not believable. Michael, how are you doing that? Are you creating prototypes at this point or is this digital design? We create digital designs, uh, create a lot, very visual testing that's done through um, online panels and a highly targeted consumer audience that shops this category, that these are your potential customers uh, target customers, and we put it in front of them and, and measure that uh, in both quantitatively and qualitatively. And then what's the next step after the words? So we find a group of words, and it, it's not singular, like we're done, but we've learned so much that we can actually now take that and apply it to the creative. And uh, what I mean are these concepts, the visual, like actual representations of the front of pack of, of whatever kind of product category we're looking at. If you've got a really good strategy, a position, you want consumers, we're shaping perceptions, that's what we're trying to do. Um, we want consumers because we've identified this white space and we want this brand to stand for X. It's like, And so we kind of paint a picture of what that looks like. And then we allow, we let the consumer guide us on what's resonating, what works, what fits with that, what helps shape those perceptions. And, you know, one design might be really strong on, say, believability or like flavor force if we're working on a food product. And but it might come at a, an expense of uh, something else where, you know, if it's a kid's juice beverage and my kids would love this, but uh, as a parent, it doesn't seem healthy. And I want I'm trying to strike a balance between what my kids want and a healthy product. And so we learned through these visuals of what's pushing different perceptions 
and then the words that work with there that are driving purchase selection. Our goal there is, is to explore a large round of creative and then narrow those down to eight that we're going to take into testing. We're purposely looking for a wide variety because in this process where we can confidently and comfortably explore things that uh, they may never put on the shelf, but there's still so much insight to get from the consumer reaction to that. And essentially now where we, we've already talked about that brief before, we make another brief. And this brief is a consumer insight brief and how we take through those pack words, through this concept testing and understand what works, what resonates and put that back to our creative team to kind of take that into another round of creative. And essentially now at this stage where our goal is to go down to three products, three designs that are including uh, messaging and visuals that the brand, the client would be happy if any of those are on the shelf and then simulate uh, with uh, who their top competitors are likely to be, simulate that buying experience. How okay. do consumers that are uh, that are familiar with shopping this environment, they're typically familiar with these other brands as these competing brands and, and measuring specifically which of those three designs is more likely to drive purchase intent. A couple of the things that you said that I like is um, being able to do this consumer testing with potential shoppers in that category. So you're not just testing consumers, you're testing purchasers, people who are going to buy, who buy in this particular category. Um, so I, I really like that. And I think that the world that we're living in now being so digitized, that it does make sense to do a lot of the testing with digital products. But when do you get into the actual physical forms? Towards this end phase, and it really kind of depends on the brand owners. And if we're building prototypes and putting those in front of the brand, on, our, on rare occasion, we may put that in front of consumers and physically test it in that. Um, it's a lot more challenging to do. And from a cost perspective, it's orders of magnitude more expensive. We found that by having a high volume of highly targeted consumers in this type of simulated environment, we're able to focus on the relative performance. So it's about like concept A, B, C, mm -hmm. which of those drives more perception, which of those drives more purchase intent to essentially reduce a significant amount of risk in that subjective decision-making of what they're gonna put on the shelf is most likely to perform. Now, if we go and do that at a smaller scale with physical mocked up products, we find that the results are the same, you know, with the exception of some, some rather challenging or unique categories, especially if our consumer audience has a lot of familiarity with that category, which we find a lot in um, fast-moving consumer goods. Uh, they're, they're mass market, they're everywhere. Uh, consumers have a lot of familiarity with them, that this type of testing works very well. Who is it who is analyzing the data? My team does that. So this is the piece of, of Smash Brand that I own. Um, that I've kind of innovated on and, and built into our process. I come from an engineering background, so I'm not a designer, and um, but I but I am, have a history of brand ownership. And you will find actually that the the large uh, Procter and Gambles of the world they have these types of tools available to them. They they can go to Nielsen Nielsen bases and Ipsos and and other brand or research specific agencies that can do this work. And it is cost prohibitive to most brands. And so we bring this in a, an effective way, but I go a step beyond that because even in those types of environment where either the brand owner, which is typically the case, like a Procter & Gamble, they're gonna go and their brand team is going
wanting to essentially order this testing and bring it back. The piece that's missing is the integration of it because my team, our team is working hand in hand with our creative team iterating over through multiple rounds of creative to actually find what's working. So we've, over the course of the last decade, have fine-tuned this process and built our specific process into essentially this kind of integrated, data-driven design creative process for physical products. It sounds fascinating. And in looking at some of the projects uh, that you show on your website, quite successful. The design part really is absolutely critical because if it doesn't work, there's no product to sell. It's a happenstance how we landed here. And I talked a little bit about that in that just my background from engineering and my business partner who is more of the creative type. That's how we landed here. Honestly, it really does work. I truly believe within the next decade, this is how it will always be done because it doesn't make sense to not do it this way. It's not easy. <laughs> it took a lot of trial and error to figure out really uh, the process that we use at Smashbrand. Yeah, I would imagine it's uh, just as much work to find that subset of consumer that you really want to be able to do the, you know, have them do the research, the consumer research on it. It probably was 10 years ago, but we use paid panels and they're the same paid panels that uh, a lot of large research agencies use. But consumers, they opt in to do this work. And um, there's been a lot of research behind why they would, you know, some for the money because they, it is paid panels. But uh, a lot of them is because they find it so fascinating, interesting, and it, it doesn't require a lot of brain power uh, to just simply react with your opinion about things that you're that are familiar to you definitely put some serious dollars behind getting those panels but this day and age it actually makes it fairly easy michael any last thoughts or any uh last points that you wanted to share with our audience uh, before we wrap up just from long ago early career where we've owned many brands i think even brands that are just starting out i love to leave advice for that because i know that's a subset of your audience there my advice really is to focus at the very beginning of find that position, find that right thing, and try to get that feedback, that consumer feedback. Never lose sight of everything that you're doing. It, there's a reaction by the consumer. And the more you can work towards understanding that reaction, the more successful your brand and product will be on the shelf. It sounds like a simple equation that maybe takes a, has a lot more behind it to inform decisions. Michael, thank you so very much for your time and explaining all of this to us. We'll continue to look at some of the uh, success stories from Smash Brand. Thank you, Lisa. It's been a pleasure to be here.